This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning, everyone. Did everyone have a good night last night? Good morning so far. What a blessing. Welcome to Power to Change the World, Kale Arabic and Jesus, or Jesus Arabic and Kale. That's probably the correct um, order of the words. This particular seminar, the title has actually been changed. It is now called, What Do We Do with Diversity? Let's begin with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. You know, Lord, that I am a sinner. I have no right to be up here speaking this morning. I don't have anything worthwhile to say. And so I pray that I won't say it. I pray that you will be our speaker this morning. May self be dead and out of the picture, and may your name be glorified. I pray that each and every person in this room, including myself, may have our ears opened to hear your message for us today. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for hearing this prayer. Please come soon. In your name, amen. I sat bolt upright in my bed under the mosquito netting. What on earth was that noise? And then I heard the reassuring sound. Pew, 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 oh, just raindrops hitting our tin roof. It was another tropical thunderstorm. I nestled back down under the sheets, ready to go back to sleep when I heard a voice. Petra! What? What? What's what? I sat up again. Get back down! Back down again. And I looked out my bed, and there was my dad on his hands and knees next to my bed. Dad, what is going on? Stay down. Look, roll out of bed. Roll out onto the ground. Okay, you roll out of bed, down onto the ground. Follow me. What's going on? It's okay. I'll explain later. We went on our hands and knees out of my room into the hallway. There, my sister Martina and my mother were already waiting on their hands and knees. All around us, we heard explosions, screams, and shattering glass. Dad said, we need to go down to the basement. Well, let's have prayer first. Dear Lord, please help us send your angels to protect us. Amen. Dad, what? it's all explained. It's okay. Follow me. We started down the hallway. There was a staircase which led down to a half basement connected to our house. But before we could get to that staircase, there was a tall glass door and floor-to-ceiling glass windows that we had to crawl past. Screams were coming from that direction, shattering glass. Dad dashed across it, got behind the brick wall on the other side. Okay, girls, come on. One by one, we came across. And then we went down the stairs into the basement. As I said, it was only a half basement. There were still many windows, but there was one room with no windows. 
the hot water heater room. We huddled in there together, and Dad began explaining what was happening. For the past eight months, we had been living in Kigali, Rwanda. My dad was working at the Adventist Dental Clinic. We were planning on staying for at least six years. We were learning French. I was almost eight years old, and I was loving it. It was a beautiful place to be. Everything seemed calm and peaceful. And then that night, April 1994, my dad was sitting up late listening to the Voice of America on his shortwave radio. As he was listening, he thought he heard a distant explosion. A couple minutes later, a phone call it was from a friend who had connections with the UN. She said, oh, Dr. Holman, the president's plane was just shot down as he was returning from some meetings. The president of Burundi was with him. We think that they were both killed. There's trouble on the way. A few hours later, at 5 a.m., a car bomb exploded just a couple blocks from our house. It was the signal that unleashed a flood of terror on our city. That car bomb was the thunder that I heard. And those raindrops hitting our tin roof were bullets. Two tribes, the Hutu and the Tutsi, an age-old conflict finally come to a head. Such hatred for each other that they could no longer live and function in each other's presence. And so a methodical extermination began. In a hundred days, a million people shot, hacked apart, and bludgeoned to death, mostly Tutsis. And our Adventist dental clinic compound was at the center of the conflict zone. Bombs, grenades, and bullets coming from all directions over our roofs. We huddled in that hot water heater room. My mom told us the story of Elisha and the angel army that protected his city, the chariots of fire. We tried to sing songs. Gradually, as there began to be breaks in the fighting, people started coming to our house. We were the only house with a basement in our part of the city. It was the safest place. Missionaries running from bush to bush, crawling along the ground with mattresses over their backs to protect them from bullets. Rwandese, Tutsi fleeing for their lives, and Hutu who did not want to participate in the killing. Adults and children. Fifty of us crowded into that dark, dank basement. After some time, a crowd of 20 men came to the gate of our compound. We could see them just peeking out over through our window in the basement. And they were carrying spears, knives, 
machetes, and long boards with nails sticking out the end. They had heard we had Tutsis hiding with us, and they wanted them. A Hutu friend who was there with us in the basement said, I'll go talk to them. It's okay. What? You're crazy. There's, no, you're, there's just one of you. There are 20 of them. No. Pray. I'm going. We watched through the window as he walked down to the gate to face those men. What do you want? You have Tutsis in there? We know it. Open up. No, no, no. Please, please. You don't want to do this thing. You open up or else we are coming over. No, please. Don't do this. You have women in there. We want your women. We're going to come in and drag them out. No, no, please, please. Don't do this thing. You don't need to do this thing. He kept pleading with them. It was not a very tall gate. It was easy for them to climb over. They were livid with rage. But this one man stood and pled with them. And as we watched through the window, they lowered their weapons, turned around, and walked away. And they didn't come back. One man against 20 carrying weapons of death and destruction. And he had nothing but faith in a God who cares. Time crawled in that basement. Whenever the fighting got fierce, we kids were shepherded into the hot water heater room where we waited. Hardly anyone slept. We didn't dare laugh. We stank. The only shower was upstairs in the danger zone. As there began to be longer breaks in the fighting, my dad and some of the men would, would sneak outside and try to find out what was happening in the outside world. We'd had no word from anyone. There was a, a missionary family farther down the street, and we didn't know what was happening with them. They hadn't come to our basement. Were they okay? We set up human chains, one behind a bush. Okay, run there to that tree. Okay, good. Now it's safe. I'll go over here to this wall, back and forth. But then the shooting would break out anew at unexpected moments, and the men would have to hit the ground again, crawl back to the house, bullets landing inches from their legs, their arms, their heads. My dad had his shortwave radio, but it wasn't built for communication with the outside world. It was just supposed to pick up traditional broadcasting like PRI or, or BBC. So he could learn a, a bit from that, but, but he couldn't pick up the channels of communication between embassies or, or those who were in the city. And then, and then he thought he found, he kind of roughly found a station that he thought might have been the American embassy trying to communicate with the other expatriates in the city. But because his radio wasn't built for that, the message just sounded like duck sounds. My dad, Lord, if I'm supposed to hear this, please open my ears. And as he listened, the duck sounds continued, 
But his ears interpreted the message. Sunday morning, 10 a.m., a tank is coming to your compound. Be ready. We're going to escort you out of the danger zone. After five, out, five days, after five days of waiting in that basement, Sunday morning came. We missionaries had our cars all lined up inside the compound. We were ready to climb in as soon as the tank came, and then we would follow it out into safety. But instead of excited anticipation, we were going to a safe place. There was an atmosphere of lead. We were being rescued. Our Rwandi's friends were remaining behind. All at once, there was a sound right outside our house. Oh, no. We had an old VW truck with an old car alarm that malfunctioned at the most inopportune moments. And this was definitely an inopportune moment. The last thing that we wanted was attention to be drawn to our compound, where we were about to escape, where we were about to leave our friends alone and unprotected. My dad ran outside, threw open the hood, looked around, found a wire, Okay. Okay. Closed the hood. Went back inside. The tank arrived. Missionaries climbed in their cars. And everyone started up their engines. Started down the hill, out the gate, to follow the tank. My dad turned the key. When he'd pulled that wire, he pulled something else, too. Here we were. What could we do? The escort was continuing. Okay, well, there was a slight hill that led down through the gate. Maybe we could, maybe we could jumpstart it. So we started coasting down the hill. <coughs> We were at the very back of the line, rolled out into the middle of the street outside the compound, and the escort continued on its way, disappeared. And there we were, sitting in our car in the middle of the road. Now, a ceasefire had been ordered, but there were still rocket launchers pointing from every wall surrounding us along the road. There were still men with weapons standing, waiting for the command to be given again so they could start fighting. And here we were, mom and dad and two little girls in the car. Lord, we're in your hands. And then an object on the horizon getting bigger bigger, approaching, a car backing up. Missionary had noticed we weren't there. Hey, what in the world happened? Well, the car wouldn't start. Okay, well, let me see. Well, let's see what we got here. Well, I do have a tow cable. Okay, let's see. We hooked it up. 
know, just pulled us as fast as they could till we caught up with the rest of the escort. We drove to the American embassy. There were already many other families who were waiting there. They had come from other parts of the city. We were the very last to arrive from the most dangerous part of the city. And there we learned the plan. They would take us in a convoy with UN vehicles and tanks, and we would drive out of the city and up and through the mountains to the border with Burundi, and then we would go through the border and down into the capital city of Burundi, Bujumboro, and there they would decide what to do with us. And so, this sounded like a good plan, but our car wasn't working, and no one had room for us in their vehicle. What could we do? So as we were thinking and praying, someone said, hey, there's a brand new Land Cruiser here. Somehow, someone had left a brand new Land Cruiser at the American Embassy with no one to drive it. So we climbed in. And now since we had a large vehicle, it turned out there were two others who also needed a ride. There was a Canadian Catholic priest and a Tutsi Catholic priest. So we started in the convoy, leaving the embassy, headed for the outskirts of the city. Many roadblocks, piles of bodies along the road. My parents made Martina and I get down on the floor of the car and covered us with a blanket to keep us safe and keep us from seeing too much. We hung our American flag out the window. We've been told to do this so that the fighters would recognize that we weren't taking sides. And yet, we had this Tutsi priest in our car. As we came up and out of the city, we came to the largest roadblock yet. A mob of men and even boys carrying weapons, spears, guns, machetes, more of those boards with nails in the end. No spark of life in their eyes, just zombies, killing machines. And they saw our Tootsie priest. Oh, 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 you're not going anywhere. He comes out, he comes out, come on, he's ours, hand him over. Don't, oh, yeah. Martina and I got back down on the floor of the car, covered us with a blanket again, and the haggling began. Finally, one of the ambassador's wives paid them off, and we continued on our way. But it was decided that the priest would be moved to a UN vehicle with soldiers and guns instead of riding with the two little girls. As we continued on our way, the uh, missionary family who had towed us that morning, their brakes failed. And as we went up and down the mountains, they drove directly behind us so that as we went downhill, they could bump into the back of our car and slow down, keep from careening off into nowhere. We passed a truck loaded with about... 40 bodies by the side of the road. Two men were fixing the flat tire that it had. 
We learned later that this truck was headed for the river where it deposited its cargo. And these bodies floated to Tanzania. It was the first sign that the outside world had of just how extensive the killing was in Rwanda. As we continued, we found another truck by the side of the road. This one wasn't piled high with bodies, though. There were two, two adults standing next to it, a tall, blonde-haired man and what looked like his wife and two little girls. And their hood was up and steam was pouring out of their engine. The other cars were zooming by. We said, well, we've got to stop. And so we pulled over, and hey, we still had the tow cable from that morning, and so we pulled it out, and then we recognized them. The arch enemies of the Adventist Dental Clinic. There's a German mechanic, very gifted, skilled guy, had, but he'd worked on our generator, and there had been a large disagreement about payment so much so to the fact that we were not on speaking terms in the slightest. Complete enemies. Didn't want to see each other's faces. But as we stood there with the tow cable and watched the other cars zooming by, we knew there was only one thing to do. So we hooked it up, towed them the rest of the way out of the country. And that relationship was healed by the time we arrived that night. At the border of Burundi, there was much paperwork to be done. Everyone's passports had to be looked through. There were people from many different countries who were part of this convoy. And as we waited hour after hour, having our cars inspected, having things checked out, looking for stowaways, a motorcade came up to the barricade. And at the center of the motorcade was a hearse. And the official, oh yeah, okay, just waved them through. They went zooming on into Burundi. It was the president of Burundi returning to his country for burial. And if it was possible, our hearts sank even further. Here we were, fleeing Rwanda, torn apart, in complete turmoil because its president had died and there was conflict between two tribes. And here a dead president was arriving, the neighboring country, made up of the same two tribes. We were fleeing one terrible situation headed for one that appeared to be as equally unstable. That night, we arrived in Bujumboro. We were sent to the Adventist church office, and there we learned the next stage of the plan. There was a Marine plane parked at the airport. The American Marines. The boys will take us home. All we had to do was the next day go to the airport with our passports. They would load us up, fly us to safety. Good thing we had our passports. Dad opened up the backpack and fishing around and began fishing around a little more. 
picked up the backpack and shook it out, our passports were gone. Painfully, we retraced every single activity of that day. And, well, where, I don't know. Where do I, well, we, I know we had him at the border. Did we? Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, but then, well, there was all this getting in and out of the car with the tow cable, having to readjust it as we went uphill or downhill, and it must have fallen out of the car somewhere along the road. We could not drive back along that road. This was war. There were men with grenades and rocket launchers, and there were men with spears and machetes walking up and down that road. There were bombs placed along the side of the road. It was dark. It was night. You don't drive back along a road in the dark, in war, looking for small dark objects by the side of the road and inspecting them. So, the next morning, as the other missionaries were excitedly getting ready to go to the airport, my family waited and prayed. And then a phone call came. It was the German ambassador. He had been driving in the very last convoy to leave Rwanda. And as he was driving through the mountains in the middle of the night, he felt impressed to stop his car, get out, and inspect a small dark object by the side of the road. He had our passports. We went to the airport, climbed into that plane, and flew away. And when we landed in Nairobi, which was the first place they took us, we were met by a mob of reporters from NBC, New York Times. Everybody wanted to talk to those brave missionaries. They wanted to interview my mom and dad. They wanted to take pictures of me and Martina, especially Martina because she was pretty cute. Just, you know, all around, all oh, those poor missionaries. All oh, those poor, they've been through so many trials. What they have experienced, please tell us about the hard times that you have had, those poor missionaries. Poor us? We were safe. What of our friends cowering back in that basement, waiting for death? Husbands, wives, children who were being hacked apart, who were being raped, who were being dragged out into the street and driven over with cars simply because they were born into the wrong tribe. Tribalism is a serious problem. Around the world today, we see its effects. In Syria with the Kurds, in Myanmar with the Karen, in Sudan, in Israel, in Palestine, in countless other nations. Did you know that in 2011, 15.2 million people were international refugees 
because of tribalism and racism and similar problems. Did you know that 26.4 million people were internally displaced, meaning they had to flee their homes within their own country because of tribalism, racism, and similar conflicts? The stats aren't out yet for two th- uh, 2012, but I guarantee you that there'll be even more. Tribalism is a global dilemma. Well, global that is for Africa and Asia and the Middle East. We don't have tribalism in the West, right? No tribalism here. We would never do anything like that. Genocide and, and killing because of tribalism, that's not part of our mentality as Westerners. Have you ever heard of the Holocaust? Okay, that was 70 years ago. I'll give you that. And today, we are so much more morally developed. We have progressed along the road to moral idealism. We're so much better now than we were 70 years ago. Have you ever heard of the KKK? Alive and active right here in our own country. Did you hear about those kids in Norway who were massacred at a summer camp in the countryside, mowed down by a political activist? It seems a lot of kids are dying recently. Okay, so maybe tribalism could happen here in our country. Maybe mass violence remotely connected to tribalism could happen. Yeah, possibly. But that's the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. We're the church. We don't have tribalism in our church. Do we? Have you heard about those black and white conferences? Have you heard about that ordination debate that is fracturing our church, creating divisions amongst our divisions? We have tribalism in our church. But we would never get violent. <laughs> We're Christians. We don't do those sorts of things. We, we wouldn't get violent. Friends, there were Seventh-day Adventist pastors that ran out into the street with machetes and participated in the Rwandan genocide. Do we think that we're better Christians than they were? Well, yes. <laughs> Obviously, they were not truly committed Christians. Obviously, they had not surrendered themselves completely to God and had God work on their hearts. This is the problem. We still have the tares growing among the wheat. What needs to happen is the shaking. And when the shaking comes, then we can get rid of all those tares, and then all of us who are left, who are truly committed Christians, can be powerfully united, and we can do a work for the world. Get rid of them! And then we can really do something. 
That is what Hitler said. Such thinking leads to genocide. What do we do with diversity? After our escape, we were plagued with guilt. We were safe. We had been miraculously rescued. But we had abandoned hundreds, thousands, a million people to death and torture. Yes, God did miraculously intervene for many. We have two Tutsi friends, two women, who when they were in their house and the killers burst through and lifted their weapons, the women said, please just let us pray one more time. And they said, oh, okay. And the women got down and they prayed, dear Lord, please forgive us for our sins. Please be with our children. Please be with these men. Forgive them also. And as the men stood there with their weapons, they could not bring themselves to do it. And they left. Those two women survived. But they lost their entire families. Not every expatriate fled during the genocide. There were two men who remained throughout the entire killing spree. One was an Italian Catholic priest. Another was Carl Wilkins, our ADRA country director for Rwanda. He's right here from this state, actually. These two men put their lives on the line every second in order to save others. They hid them. They drove out and found people. They protected them. They told people to stop. They decided that dealing with tribalism was their responsibility. Is it our responsibility? The Pharisee asked, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus responded with a story that met tribalism head on. For months after the genocide, I couldn't sleep at night. I was traumatized by what I had experienced. Every time there was silence, all I could hear were explosions and shattering glass and screams. Every time I closed my eyes, all I could see were the faces of our friends as we climbed into our car and left them behind. Every night when my parents put me to bed, I would scream and cry and flail around. God didn't care. He didn't care about my friends. He had left them to bleed to death in our basement. He didn't care about them, so he obviously didn't care about me. He had abandoned them. He had abandoned me. My parents would try to comfort me, pray with me, sing songs to me, put on nice music. But it went on and on, month after month. Finally, one night, my parents couldn't stay with me. I don't remember why, but they said, I'm sorry, Petra, you're just going to have to handle it on your own tonight. I panicked. 
I was left all alone. No one was there with me. Anyone could burst through my window and grab me and drag me out into the street and do to me what they had done to my friends. I remember jumping up on my bed and just just saying, God, if you're real, if you care, if you can hear me at all, then then you can help me go to sleep. An overwhelming peace settled on my bed. I lay down, closed my eyes, and didn't wake up until the next morning. It was then that I knew that God gives peace. That God was there with my friends even as they were being killed. It was then that I learned that until I am at peace with God, until I am at peace with who I am in God, I cannot be at peace with those around me. But when I am in peace in God, then I can be at peace no matter what is going on around me, no matter who is going on around me. Being in peace in God allows me to be at peace out there as well. What do we do with diversity? It starts here. The genocide left everyone reeling. There were entire families exterminated. We have a Tutsi friend who lost her whole family. And in a conversation with someone, it came up that there might be Hutus in heaven. She said, if there are Hutus in heaven, I don't want to be there. This was an Adventist. This was extreme pain, extreme hatred, extreme grief. But I have good news. In the most extreme of circumstances, from the most extreme experiences, God is able to bring the most extremely unexpected results. My dad was listening to BBC one day, months after the genocide had finished. And there were interviews of survivors from the genocide. And as he listened, he thought he recognized the voice of a young girl who was an ADRA employee. So he turned up. Sure enough, it was her. And the reporter was asking her, So, uh, how much of your family did you lose in the genocide? Oh, I lost nearly everyone. My mother and father and my brothers and most of my sisters and their children. Oh, well, do you ever see the men who killed your family? Oh, yes, I walk by their homes every day on my way to work. The reporter was speechless. Uh, you, uh, You walk by their homes on your way to work? It's on my way. Uh, You you must be overcome with hatred. I I mean, 
these men wiped out your family. Don't you wish they were dead? Oh, no. I don't wish they were dead. I have forgiven them because Christ forgave me. The entire news crew was frozen. <laughs> uh, uh, this is Adam Parts with BBC News. The music came on. They could not continue. I have forgiven them because Christ forgave me. What do we do with diversity? Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 11. There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. When Christ becomes all to us, when Christ is in us, when we see Christ in others around us, when Christ is all and in all, then there can be unity in the midst of diversity. Christ's love is what enables us to reach beyond tribalism, to reach across tribalism, to reach into tribalism with love. I want you to think about your friends for a minute. Your group of friends, those you hang out with, those you text with. Just picture their faces in your mind. Are they mostly white? Are they mostly black? Are they all Adventist? Ask God to help you reach out of your tribalism and to love with the differences. He can do it. He can help us love her before she follows our time clock, to love him before he listens to our music, to love them before they speak our language. In the church, working together with each other, towards a common goal. In the church, God can help us love with the differences. Why? Because while we were Greeks, he spoke with us. While we were Romans, he healed our diseases. While we were Sidonians, he had compassion on us. He can help us love with the differences. And outside the church, in the world, those we interact with, he can help us love with the differences. He can help us love her before she quits smoking. Love him before he keeps the Sabbath. Love them before they renounce their gay lifestyle. Love them before they come to you and say, I'm sorry that I killed your husband, your brothers, your children. He can help us love with the differences. Why? Because 
While we were yet tax collectors, he spoke with us. While we were yet Pharisees, he healed our diseases. While we were yet prostitutes, he had compassion on us. While we cursed and beat and spit him in the face, he died for us. Christ can help us love. What do we do with diversity? We love each and every member of each and every tribe because Christ loves us. We have a couple minutes left. I would like you to find a prayer partner. And together, I would like us to pray for those suffering from tribalism around the world, for our church, that it may be united in the midst of diversity, and for each one of us personally, that we may learn to love with the differences. Let's take the next five minutes to do that, and I'll close with prayer from up here. bow our heads for prayer and then if we want to continue praying afterwards that's also encouraged dear father in heaven we thank you for loving us despite our shortcomings despite our nearsightedness despite our selfishness lord we know that you can fill us with your love You've promised to transform us into your likeness. And all of your promises are yes. So we claim your promises today. We ask that you fill us with your Holy Spirit, that self be dead, and that you fill us to the brim that overflows and out with your love that may reach across any tribal barrier. We pray for our friends around the world who are suffering the effects of tribalism, families and children without homes. We pray for our church struggling right now with unity. Pour out your Holy Spirit, Lord. May self be dead and may your name be glorified. Thank you for each and every person in this room. I ask that you'll be with each of them in a special way today. And that you'll help each one of us to remember your love. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Please come soon. And may we be ready for that day. In your name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, 
visit us online at gycweb.org.